Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. John Copenhaver and Al Warren. Heard on KCB 106.5 FM Los Angeles. 102.3 FM Riverside. And 1050 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mr. John Copenhaver is here. Hey, Al. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> yeah. uh, did you wait up New Year's? Were you doing Christmas and all that? Did you wait for the balls to drop and uh, the balls? On the New Year's? No, I did not. I did not wait for the balls to drop. I was sick and in Nebraska, so like no. Was well, that does that kind of come with hand in hand? If you're in Nebraska, you got to be sick, or what was going on? No, I, I teach at a um, uh, a low residency MFA program and one. One of the in-residency parts of that program is right after Christmas and it covers, goes over New Year's. And so I was there and um, was sick. So not real sick, just cold, but it's like, I'm going to bed. Sorry. Sorry, New Year's. <laughs> well, it's not that big a deal. Older you get, the less thrilling it is. It's just another year closer to the end. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a cheerful thought. It's another, you're one step closer to death. (laughs) One year closer. I'm such a cheery guy, hey? It's January, so we have to be that way. Glass half full. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> Glass has got holes in it. <laughs> well, so now we've got uh, a man here who's written a book who's uh, pretty exciting. It's a thriller. No Home for Killers. Sounds like my house. It's a home for killers, so come on over. So we got Mr. E.A. Amer. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much, Al and John. Uh, thank you. It's been great to talk with you again, and really good to be here. Looking forward to talking with you. Well, so so how did you get um, rooked into this writing thing? So I heard your interview with Wanda Morris which was fantastic. And she's such a great person. And she talked about how she, you know, this was her first novel that, that eventually sold and she had to rework it and find an agent. And for me, it was so easy to write a book and get published. I had no idea what she was talking about. I really just wrote an idea on a cocktail napkin, sent it to my top agent she picked it up and we sold it. Um, Did you write uh, it with crayon? <laughs> there, there's a lot of truth to that story, but in a greater sense, it's not true at all. What <laughs> really happened was I started writing seriously in 97 when I graduated college and I got a job answering phones and it was the only job I could get. And everybody who called, it was a political network and everybody who called hated me and swore at me and I thought you know I really loved writing and it became kind of reading and writing became a retreat for me at that job and I had always thought about being a novelist you know you kind of imagine it but it it seems so daunting before you before you ever try to write a novel that you know it wasn't something I seriously considered but I started, I, I had an experience that fueled it, and over the next five to six years, I told no one I was writing. Just, I wrote every night, you know, I took it seriously. It, for me, taking it seriously meant writing every day. That, that's not what it means to everybody, but for me, that was what it meant. And um, I finally had a novel ready to go, and uh, that was in 2004, and then I got published for the first time in 2016. <laughs> so, wow. so there was a gap, yeah. <laughs> a gap of a lot of years and a few novels that are in drawers somewhere. Um, but wow. yeah, that's what, that's what, that, that was my path. It took a sort of an embarrassingly long time. You need to sleep with more people. You know, I, I slept my way to the middle. <laughs> Well, why stop there? <laughs> well, the, the middle's where all the, the fun parts are. Well, right. yeah, you, know, you got to get you got to get through this, right? And you got to get to the top. Yeah, it you know it 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 took so long, and 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 you know for most writers it takes a long time, and that's you know fine. I I don't regret any part of my publishing path. Um, it. You know, it it was really hard, but I've I've never ever taken anything for granted because of that. You know, every time I'm on a on a panel or or something, I'm like, and and I think you, maybe you both can relate to this. You know, it, it's so nice to be on this side of the stage finally. It's it, it's just such a, a a lovely thing, and and um and there's a lot more I want to do. Um, every writer, you know, has a healthy or an unhealthy 
dose of ambition, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm so excited that I was able to, to finally publish a book. So what was it that, that gave you the courage to actually show your, your writing to people to try and publish it after sitting there for so many years? I had this sense that when I finished my book, I would, it was going to be like Moses coming down from a mountain, holding commandments, and people would crowd around me waiting to see what I'd written. And and keep in mind, wisely, I told no one what I was doing. So there was no writing organizations or friends or, or anyone who had any idea I was writing. And um, it, no one cared. And that first book wasn't, it had a lot of heart, and that was about it. Um, you know, but I, I, I was, so you get that sense of, you know, of, of despondency and, and you're, you're, you're in that, that I was in that mode where you're querying agents and you're, you have all this hope and you don't know what the future holds. And as the future begins to sort of be revealed, that hope fades. It's, it, it's being on submission is, is so crushing yeah. and, and, and so brutal. And, and once I, but I, I felt like I was sort of built for that. You know, I was sort of built for this field. Like, yeah, the, it gets you down at times, but, but I'm, I'm sort of a okay person at getting knocked down and, yeah. like, oh my God, that's a 90s song, isn't it? But yeah, but getting back up. <laughs> yeah, I get so yeah, that's right. So is that when you started to sleep with people? Um, I mean, no, I slept with people a lot later than I wanted. <laughs> Try it on. Yeah. <laughs> that didn't work. When in doubt, whip it out. <laughs> well, Ed, I have a question for you because, um, you know, I, I know um, that, you know, I, I, I teach a lot of students in my MFA program. Of course, we've both been through MFA programs and the same one. Oh, I didn't I, go get an MFA at Mason. Oh, I thought you did from Georgia. Yeah, I got my, I I studied writing there as a bachelor's, and I took a couple of MFA classes, but I got a master's in literature from Marymount. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, I don't know why I thought that. Um, But, you know, I think that, um, you know, you're looking at them as sort of saying, like, you know, this, you're going to, you know, enter the the sort of writing life and what to expect. There's a lot, and I'm sure you can relate to this, a lot of inside, you know, the uh when you're learning a lot of sort of instruction is fo- focused on the craft right not necessarily the industry right and, and you, you know you're kind of talking about how you kind of didn't have any connections or anything you just wrote this novel and said hello world here's my novel <laughs> um <laughs> but on the flip side one thing that i've always admired about you is that you're so great at so you support others all the time in the community you you're you know like uh, the noir at the bar and writing articles um for a washington uh, independent review of books and um i think that i just when did you sort of sort of figure that out like along this journey like when did you start figuring out how to do that oh, well thanks john that's nice um you know, it was really, I, I don't want to, re, you know, dismiss that or elevate it, but I will say that it came from sort of a self-serving sense, right? I, I wanted to do stuff that would put me in people's minds, my writing, you know? So, and I noticed that when I was in the early days when everybody was sort of, 
I think everybody was on Facebook at that point. I noticed that it was the people who have, um, you know, some who can help you, who really seem to have the most um, sort of buzz about them. You know, they'd put a comment and, and everybody would flock to them sort of. And I thought, you know, I want to I want to get to that point. Um, so it was it really started just from a naked sense of ambition. There was no, there was no sense of altruism or helping people or anything. I was like, you know, I want to, I want to do something that that you know um, gets more attention to my writing and gets me sort of you know elevated above that. And, and then you know I, um, you know I, I started talking to it, the my initial work with working with other writers was with the International Thriller Writers and their new members program. So I was working with debuts and, and that's sort of where the altruism came, right? Because um, it's so nerve wracking and so confusing. And there's so many questions that debut writers have and almost all of them don't feel quite like they belong there. And they're not sure if it's going to get taken away. And I really wanted to help them. You know, I really wanted to work with, with those writers and similar to that, at the time, I really wanted to work with um, to to help uh, women who were writing crime fiction, because I was working with near national thriller writers, and I'd gone to Thriller Fest, and and I had a fantastic time. It was the the first conference I went to, and I, I made some of my closest friends there, and 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 have, but you know, it was very much a male dominated conference, and. That sure. was something I wanted to to change. I, I talked to a woman who didn't feel comfortable there, and and I wanted to to sort of do what I can to 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 change that. So I got more involved with ITW and worked on their board, and then uh, started the Noir at the Bars thing. Was was just you know kind of a fun thing to do. So so that led to that. And yeah, it's it's actually at this point now. And and you know, John, from working with people like when you're really invested in something um, there's a lot of work you do that, that sort of is noticed, but there's a lot you do that no one knows, right? You're, you're helping people um, and and working with others and working with organizations. And a lot of it's behind the scenes and it's very taxing and it takes a lot out of you, but I'm, I'm really glad I had those opportunities and those experiences. They also put a lot back into you, right? Like when you're doing that sort of stuff, I always find if you, when you're helping people and working with people, it you, you learn a lot yourself. Like it, it changes you as a person too, right? Oh yeah, um, because you know I started out with um, small publishers, the small publisher route, and I didn't, you know, working with debuts who were with you know the big five and were you know who had advances in the six or seven figures wasn't something I was familiar with. Um, so I learned about the industry through them and we, and sort of was, I was still able to offer them some guidance, right? Because it's, you know, it's a, it's a lot of it's about knowing the, you know, the organizations that'll help you and, and where to go and who to work with. And if, you know, if I don't have a question, I can find it from somebody else. So after a while, you know, to your point out, yeah, they, you, you take a lot from that and you, you really become, um, uh, you know, sort of a, I don't want to say an insider, but you have a little bit of that, of that. You sort of have, I was sort of peering at the insiders. 
It's almost like being in a political party. Yeah, I remember, you know, it, I went to, I did one board meeting at Thriller Fest because I, I could only go, I was on the board for two years and the second year I was hurt and couldn't go. And I was at this board meeting and, you know, R.L. Stein and Lee Child and David Morrell are, are all right there and, and talking about, you know, their experiences in publishing. And it was fascinating to, to see these, you know, sort of giants and, and legends. Um, trading stories and stuff and and i was you know i was really happy to have that to 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 see that and and i still i think i'll always take something from that so now this book uh no home for killers um what's the basic premise of this book so a a jazz musician is murdered and he was abusive and privately abusive publicly revered um and his two estranged sisters are brought together to find out what happened to him. One, one of the sisters, the older one, is a former social worker who's burnt out. And the younger, younger one is a, a secret vigilante. I mean, she's also a grant writer because the vigilante thing doesn't pay. <laughs> but it's more exciting to say she's a secret vigilante versus a grant writer. Nothing against grant writers. I love that you're a grant. That's so practical. And, you know, kind of like it's like good advice for writers built in there. Like, you can't be just a vigilante, right? No. (laughs) Get a real job. (laughs) Oh, God. <laughs> wow. So now when you're putting together who what came first was it kind of the the premise of the story or was it your characters? I wish I had a good answer for this because I do not remember. I think it was this the the characters. I I was going I've been going through a phase and I I think I just got out of it where I've been right where I've been really curious about siblings and I all of my recent writing and books have involved the relationship between siblings. So the idea of this, um, and I, I really wanted to write about jazz. I, I had a, I, I, jazz was sort of my, uh, my stomping ground for a long time as far as listening, not, not playing. And I wanted to incorporate that in a book and, and have a book that, that talked about art in, you know, in sort of a, uh, a young artist, uh, point of view. So the three siblings were really my uh, impetus for the story. Um, and then in, when, it, um, when it sold and my editor read it, one of her suggestions, because the, the jazz physician who's been murdered, the, the brother, has a, a, a point of view prior to his death. And she was like, you know, I really think the story is about his effect, sort of his ghostly lingering effect on his two sisters. And it's a story about women and the effect that corrosive men have on them. And I don't think you should give them a point of view. And I, that was, you know, it, all, all of her advice I resisted. And then by the final round of edits had taken willingly, you know? Um, so yeah, it was the characters first, the characters that, that did it. And that's a natural, the resistance is natural when, when you got editors and people coming back at you saying, well, telling you about what should change or what shouldn't change. I think that's a natural um, reaction, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, my favorite editing note from her was um, at the end, it was like, my God, she can't bite off his nose. 
<laughs> like, and I, you know, and, and the thing is, like, I'm really desensitized to that. So I was like, why not? I don't get it. And so when the reviews came that said this book is, you know, you should know this book's violent. I was like, it is? You know, I I really need a good that, – that's why I'm really happy to be working with her, with Jessica Wells from – Thomas and Mercer because she's a good barometer for that. She's like, okay, you've 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 crossed the line here, and I'm like, okay, good, thank you, because I I have no idea. <laughs> right. Well, you know, not not every family has people biting others' noses off and stuff like that. You know, that's just not that's not that's not the average family. Well, case. I don't know what kind of PC culture you grew up in, but when I <laughs> <laughs> Noses well. were flying off people's faces in my day. <laughs> <laughs> we, we ate the weak siblings for lunch. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, no. Well, I, I'm Canadian raised, so, you know, we're boring. We do nothing like that. <laughs> put that out there right well, now. Well, she didn't bite okay. her brother's nose. I should, I should mention that. It was somebody else. Oh, oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. No. She just bite, bites random men's noses off. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to bite someone you know. You know, you want to get a different flavor in your mouth. Yeah. Mm. Um, what, so your characters, who, how, do they, how do they come to you? Um, how do you create them or uh, kind of explain your characters to you? And I say that because we get a lot of people that will, um, you know, they describe characters as family and kids and and some of them see them some of them hear hear them some of them don't like where what is it for you yeah i think that's that's cool when people say that i I was talking once to a a children's writer who wrote books about a young girl and she said it's just like she's sitting on the the monitor you know kicking her legs giving me ideas and i was like wow you're an asshole that does not happen to me (laughs) (laughs) that sounds awesome but no um no, for me, this was uh, – so no, no Home for Killers to me feels like my most personal book, and I, I think in a weird way I'm, I'm much more sensitive about it than I was about anything else I've written. Um, and, and part of that is because I, I see this book – sort of looking outside of myself as a progression. I I noticed in my two other books before this that there was always that sort of wacky side character um, who was a little unhinged, and that character was kind of, you know, at times the comic relief, sort of the the audience surrogate, but they, they died in my other two books, and people who read them were like, I was so bummed when blah, blah, blah died. And I was like, yeah, me too. Why, why did I do that? And it, you know, this, this sort of became an idea of like, let me take that side character and put her in the forefront and make her the, the real protagonist of the book. So Emily, the, the vigilante who's, who's a bit sort of delightfully unhinged um, became the, the hero of it. And, she was, you know, in, in a way, uh, uh, I took a bit of maybe all the characters I've written and kind of made her like a Frankenstein's type of monster, you know. Um, but she doesn't, you know, I, I, I never felt a sense of 
I have a very real idea of what my characters look like and sound like, but I don't have the point of having conversations with them, of talking with them, you know, of, of sometimes imagining that, you know, they're, they're next to me or something. I, I've, I've never had that experience. Um, it, it sounds kind of cool, but it's not, um, but, but I'm usually able to separate them. I, I think part of it is because I usually, when I do a book, I print out images of the characters based off actors, based off people that I, uh, that I, that I, that, you know, seem to remind me of this person. And I put them, I tape them around me in, in the, in my office. And it's a nice way to feel submerged in the book, but also to remember, you know, what this character looks like, how they'd react to keep them really sharp in my mind. Um, one time <laughs> when my son was born, we had a nanny and she had a best friend and her best friend came over one time to help her out. And I was like, oh my God, you look just like the character. I'm just like, it was uncanny. So, um, and I, I didn't think any of this was weird. I went to Facebook. I found a picture of her, printed it out and taped, taped it on my wall. And then I was writing and then my wife came in, you know, like a week later and she's like, so what do you have a picture of Cindy on the wall? <laughs> and I was like, you know, that, that's an awkward conversation. <laughs> it would have been more awkward had it been Cindy, but if she had seen it, but yeah. yeah. But that would be weird to walk into a room and see like that someone's imagining you as a character in their novel. I mean, even if it's, even if it's not like you, but they're using your face and features to sort of fit for a character. I mean, I do, by the way, Ed, I do the same thing. I, I yeah, I, but mine, my, all my books are set in the past. So I'm like reaching back for lots of people that probably aren't even with us anymore, stealing their pictures off the internet and using them as my, you know, <clears throat> you know, inspiration. But it's, it is an interesting thing, you know, you are borrowing someone else's image to do that. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, I feel like it's fine as long as it's a, a novel and I don't have like 40 pictures of somebody I know all around me in a dark office. But, you know, I, I do think there's something to it about this sense. And I think this is really interesting to me and it's something I've been thinking about because Jordan Harper, uh, the, the writer, sent out a newsletter where he talked about this, about creating a sort of an inspiration board that's based off random things, not, you know, that, that, re, that will put him in the novel that he's writing. So it can be, you know, a, even just like a, a, a torn bit of a sleeve or a ribbon or something like that. And it puts him in the right mindset to be in. And I, I find that fascinating because yeah, when it, I, I never have an issue with slipping into my my book or the the place where I left it when I when I stopped writing the day before, and I think part of it is because when I step into my office, I'm sort of immersed in that world, and and to get to the point, you know, I was talking about earlier at this at the start of this, um, that's something I dreamed about having the opportunity to do someday, right? To, to create a world and, and flesh it out and, and share it with it. And do you find yourself drinking when you get in that room? Uh, I drink a lot of coffee and I drink a, a <laughs> lot of water because I'm terrified of kidney stones. <laughs> so I drink like eight bottles of water a day. <laughs> wow. So, but how much of you is going into the, into the characters? How much of you are you giving away? 
I think a lot. You know, I I worry, and I think this is something that any that you you two and any writer can relate to. I I, I put a lot of. You know, I'll occasionally put personal experiences in the book as a memory that someone had or, or a conversation, some, a story someone confided in me will make its way into a book. And I'll think about that when I wrote it, when I write it. And then, you know, a few drafts later, I've forgotten where I got that story from. And it's changed a little bit and, and the work gets published and someone is like, you know, that threesome was private. <laughs> I'm like, wait, that was you. <laughs> right? and so I worry about that. As far as me um, fitting into my, you know, like what, what comes from me personally, otherwise, not a lot. I mean, I'm pretty boring. You know, I, I think most writers probably are, despite what their persona suggests. You know, I mean, we're, we're nerds. Right. We read a lot. We write a lot. Um, there's some of us who do, you know, the, you know, I went to war and I drank in a bar and stuff like that. But I, I kind of think those writers are BSing. Yeah. They were probably doing dishes in the basement. <laughs> so you said this is a very personal, probably the most personal book to you, right? And, it's a, you know, so that means it's important in a sense. Um, what exactly um is so personal is it is it is it a message you're trying to get to people something that you want a reader to take away from this book um other than the main story itself yeah you know there's 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 maybe three things about it that come to mind when i when when i consider that your question al it's it seems the first to me is you know, as I mentioned, the, the evolution of the protagonist, you know, from what I'd written to, to really making that forefront. It, it felt, you, you hear writers a lot of times say, you know, I just wrote the book that I wanted to read. And for me, that's what this, this was, you know, so it was chancy in that. Um, it was the approach that, that I kind of dreamed about taking and I wasn't, you know, I didn't know if it would work. So there was a lot of, a lot of fear in that, um, which really makes it feel more personal. The second thing was the jazz music. You know, j- jazz has been, was an important part of my foundation when I started writing. That's when I discovered jazz and the two went hand in hand. So writing about jazz in a novel really, uh, to, this is unintentional, but it struck a chord. And then, <laughs> I'm sorry. And then I, I'm a I'm a dad. <laughs> and the third thing was um, about it was you know sort of the end of the book. And I I don't want to give it away, but there's with when I write about violence and and as I mentioned, this is a violent you know book. I I, I don't think. I don't think it's more violent than most dark thrillers, but there is violence in it. And when I write about violence, I never write about it in a celebratory sense, right? I don't want as much as I enjoy, I I love Marvel. I'm a fanboy and I love, you know, uh, the good action sequence in a, in a show or movie, but I don't, I, this book doesn't give you that in this book. I want the violence to be unsettling. You know, I want it to feel, real in that sense when you when you are in or or you're even almost in a fight that that sense of fear and and shakiness and sweatiness 
that you get. I, I wanted that to be to really come through. Um, so for people who who choose violence, and there's you know a few of them in this book, um, I don't want them to be heroic. You know, I don't want to write uh, a Jack Reacher. You know, as much as you know, I mentioned Lee Child before, and and I. I greatly admire his prose, but I, I never took to Reacher as a as a character on a on a personal level. I I didn't think I always thought like, what does Reacher do like on a Saturday night? <laughs> you know, I mean, he's just kind of a lonely dude. Um, he brings out the tools. Yeah, the power yeah. tools. <laughs> That's what I'm assuming, right? It it seems in character, but I I don't I, I don't find those those kind of characters for me fulfilling. Um, even though I, I do like a lot of those books and stories, but so for me, you know, this, this book is is sort of a rebuke to that. Um, it, it really, in some ways, uh, encapsulates how I feel about, um, the choice between violence or or nonviolence and, and that putting in the book, I, I don't know, you know, how people will respond to it. You know, we're, we want to write, you know, a, we want to we want to tell the story we want to tell, but we want to also entertain people. And and I, I don't truly know and I, I don't think I will know until some time has passed if I uh, achieve that. Hmm. You know, I'm, I'm really interested about this sort of topic of how you go about uh, depicting violence. Um, it's something I think a lot about, too. I mean, maybe it's just something that as a crime writer, you can think about, I mean, a lot of your topics, if, if you do this, do center around violence, but yeah, I, I love that you point out that, that it's not necessarily the degree of violence, but it's how you position it morally within a book. Um, in fact, yeah. sometimes make it more responsible for it to be a little more descriptive and graphic because you're honoring it's the horror of it. I don't know if that makes any sense. Would you agree? Or what do you think? I am so in sync with you right now. I'm just staring at your Zoom image <laughs> right in the eye like, man, I feel you. Um, because, yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot um, with violence and with sex. I've, you know, the, the, the general sense among crime fiction readers and, and sort of an industry sense is the camera politely turns away at some point. And I've noticed that with I, I I just think it's not fair to the character. I feel like if you don't show you know sex or violence in some degree of detail, then you're really missing an opportunity to 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 show a vulnerability in a character that that would wouldn't be seen any other way yeah and, and there's some writers now who i I was I did a I did an interview with Jennifer Hillier and May Cobb and Katie Gutierrez, um, all who had in their last books had sex somewhat vividly described, much more than traditional crime fiction does. Um, and and I, I'm just curious about it. You know, I, I there, there's no mistake, by the way, that these were all women. Um, I think because and, and all women who have who have written around psychological fiction. Because you're writing about the interior of people, and I think there's we I, we were in a conversation about this a while ago, John. Uh, that you know that the the sense of character in a book is for me much more compelling than the crime. 
yeah, ideally they'll go hand in hand. Ideally I'll be on, and, and with great thrillers I am, right? I want to know what happened. I had just finished the last policeman trilogy by Ben Winters and, and it was so fabulous. And the, the character and the, the story and the overarching dynamic of the plot just, you know, was like a nail uh, being hit by a hammer. It was, it was stunning. Um, but to that sense, I, you know, I wonder, like, are we not, are we shirking away from character by not going into more of their, more of these very personal, very, very human and very basic urges? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I tend to be a writer, a character writer first, and then kind of work out the plot. So, um, I mean, I would argue, yes, we should, because I think it's what ultimately humanizes and uh, fleshes out the, the fiction that we write, um, you know. And, and and then if you are talking about stuff like violence, and you've done a great job of developing a character, then they're either committing the violence or they're uh, subject to the violence it's going to matter a lot more. Right. And yeah. so I just think that that seems to be kind of important. I think that's important. I think that, but sometimes it takes, it requires a little more patience on the reader's part to learn about the character and get to know them. So they're invested. And I, I do think there's a, a power to, to leaving it to the reader's imagination. You know, I mean, one of the most beautiful romantic scenes I've read that had sort of a sexual energy to it was uh in f scott fitzgerald's last uh tycoon you know where this man is is with this woman and and he is there they're embracing and they're in this private they're they're this empty house and and something under her dress falls to the floor and it's just like this beautiful moment but that's fitzgerald so that's not really fair but you know it it it, it, it's stuck with me for probably 25 years now. So I, I think there's an argument both ways, right? I mean, there's there's a, a power to doing something um, that's merely suggestive and uh, a power to writers like Karen Slaughter, who can really go into unsettling depth about violence and about violence situations and, and make them compulsively readable and... Uh, and and also seemingly authentic and honest. Now, when when you um, took on this writing about uh, two sisters and a brother, where did you draw from to get that relationship of siblings? You know, I'm an only child, so I'm not sure. I, I think, like a lot of only child, uh, only children, you know, you sort of imagine having a sibling, especially during your you know early lonely younger years and and i did have a a cousin i was close to um and she and i you know had fun we we would hang out we even hung out when we were older although then it got weird because you're at a restaurant and we were like oh is this your wife and you're like no it's my cousin and everyone thinks you're doing it um (laughs) and and i have awkward i have very attractive cousins so (laughs) it's tough i get it but I, I think something about that relationship of um, dynamics of, of, of like what I what I like about the siblings I see my wife has two sisters and there's this sense of you know uh, no matter what happens no matter frustrations they have arguments you know but we'll go without talking for a while there there's there's always this this like push and pull of siblings 
that's that's really that's really fun. Um, I don't think they find it fun. But as the outside person, I'm looking at it like, wow, you have this amazing dynamic, this relationship that you really don't have with anyone else. Like there's I, – I know there's brothers and sisters. I've known them who – who've split apart completely, but the ones that don't, that, that linger around each other out of some sense of familial duty or love or, um, the memories of love. I, those are the ones I just find fascinating. I, I love friendships that, that have, that have weathered a bit, you know, and, and that's, uh, and, and, and sibling relationships to me are the, are a very close representation of that. Yeah. It's, it's an, it's an interesting relationship that siblings can have. And that, and that's why I was wondering like where you kind of drew from. So, um, being an only child. So did you have imaginary brothers and sisters and that sort of? <laughs> no, I, I didn't. I mean, I did play. I was going to say with, oh God, I, I played by myself a lot, <laughs> but you know, I, and, and I had the whole imaginary, you know, like, I think this is maybe a common thing with children. Or I think I probably did a bit more, you know, I had imaginary, like everything I had, had a voice and a, and, and a conversation and, and a certain story arc in its life, you know, every stuffed animal, every toy figure I had, you know, even gosh, my kid, we were, it was two years ago, we were in quarantine, we were, you know, in the pandemic, and he, we were going through, we were pulling out, like, something to play with, and, and a bag of my marbles when I was a kid fell out, right, and these there were these, like, 12 marbles, and I was like, oh, yeah, that's speedy, and that's rough, and that's, and my wife and kid were looking at me like, are you naming them? I was like, no, those are their names when I, you guys didn't name your marbles, but yeah, I, I I had very close relationships with, I guess, inanimate objects. Wow. Do the stuffed animals still talk to you to this day? No, no. I, oh, I, he's delaying I have, too much. Yeah, please. Yeah, I mean, no. I, I don't, But sometimes I'm with my kid, and I'm like, you know, he's throwing a stuffed animal around the room. I'm like, well, you'll hurt it. No, you won't. It's a stuffed animal. <laughs> <laughs> you can see him driving somewhere with stuffed animals seat belted in and he's talking to them, you know, like going to the zoo. Yeah, I mean, that'll be a point where things have really gone off the rails, but yeah, I could <laughs> it's not unimaginable. No. But to, to draw on, on these, I think, you know, for a lot of stuff, I look at my wife's relationships with her with her siblings and her sisters, and and I, and I, I, I do take a lot from that. Um, my best friend for my whole life, her and her sister have had a very close, but at times, you know, contentious relationship. I look at that. Um, those are the, the people. I, it's not the kind of thing you, I research. You know, I, I find with some of that personal stuff, I don't need to like interview people about it, but it is the, um, but I, I think when I, when I need answers about something, um, I look at that even without realizing it, but you know, it took me a few drafts to realize that I'd written you know, to, to put the connection together that one of my characters was a social worker and my wife's sister is a social worker. You know, I never thought about that otherwise. Right, right. Subconscious. Um, writing evil characters or, the, you know, the, the murderer themselves, um, do you have a problem writing that kind of character or do you have any um, issues getting into the head of someone that would be a violent person? Yeah, I, I usually, so with thrillers, one thing that, um, 
that I've I've always done is had you know the thrillers, I'm sorry, the the killers or the bad the the, the baddies POV in it, and I'll usually have a few of the bad the bad guys, and they're I, I try to balance all of them out. Right. I try to to give something about them that that seems human and relatable and blah, 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 blah. But there's always the one person who is remorseless, who's just a just a terrible person. And that person I I usually don't uh, offer humanity to. Yeah. And and I I think about that because I, I, I sort of one of the things that that's really inspired me is the uh, TV show Fargo. Mm-hmm. And in the first two to three seasons, there was always a character who was the, kind of like no country for old men, right? Like the, the person who was this remorseless, relentless killer who was just, you know, slowly walking after you, but they were coming, you know, sort of a, a, a you know, a, a symbol, a symbol of death. And, and that's the character that I, that I want to write. And it doesn't, grant them humanity but it does i think i I hate to think about it but i do think that that person exists not throughout their life you know they were a kid they were held they were loved they laughed they you know giggled but i do think that there's a point where there's people who are who have become irredeemable well, and there's always something about usually the, the the evil character or the the bad person, as we like to think. They usually have in their mind reasons to do what they're doing. Like they think they're doing something good or something right, or there's a there's a direction that they're in. So sometimes it's important to talk about that. Yeah, sometimes, right? Sometimes there is, and sometimes there's evil that's done, you know, for the sake of evil. And I, you know, it's one of the things that really sort of sent me on the direction of violence, you know, was um, uh, violence to woman, right? That was uh, something that was around my life. You know, I, it was, I, I was always in all male groups growing up. There was a fraternity or sports or, you know, Boy Scouts and you know, I, I'm, I'm colored by this, but the way they treated a woman struck me as, you know, re- really repugnant and very uh, uh, barbaric. And I, I you know, I, I was never a participant in those kind of conversations. But, you know, I wasn't... Um, the outspoken adversary to her, you know, I was the quiet, uncomfortable person on the, on the other side of the room. And, you know, it, it, it struck me that there was a sense of, of sort of gleefulness in their, their hate. And, and when I, when I, you know, sort of moved away from that and, and, and got out, got away from those people and, you know, talk to more women, but most of my friends are women at this point and it have been for, I don't know, 30 years or so, but you know, it, it's, it, it, it was very eye-awakening right? or eye-opening, you know, it was kind of like what the Me Too movement uh, did for so many people where they're like, wait, you get harassed? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I had that sense, you know, a long time before. Um, 
so it, it, it really spurred that. But I, I, you know, to get back to that, that sort of evil, it was this gleefulness, you know, and I, and I, I don't think there was a point there with, with some of those, some of those people and some of their actions and some of the stuff we still read about, right? Um, whether it's sexual assault or rape or, or what have you, where there's any sense of, um, of, you know, uh, uh, a, a person that I that I necessarily want to feel you know empathy toward. Right. So so how is it you feel you want to tell the story when it pertains to violence against, let's say, woman or to someone that's less than like weaker than the person you know being the violent one? How how is it you try to write that? Well, it's tough, right? Because I've always written with. My three my three books have had women as the protagonist, and and I'm a little uncomfortable about that because I think it's because I I don't necessarily think in some ways I'm the right person to tell the story, right? Um, and I don't want to, so I, I I take a lot of pains to make sure that I'm that I'm not um, making the woman masculine, making them respond in ways that, that I would with Emily, with this book as a vigilante, you know, she, she chooses violence. And, and one of the, the, the first questions I had to deal with about that was, is that even realistic? Right. But Emily is sort of cartoonish. And in, in the book, I think it works, but it, it's something that I, I have to, my, my biggest concern with that is, is being fair and not not taking a voice, not taking a voice from someone who would who would tell it better than I do. Um, so, and, and that's you know something that writers are wrestling with now, right? Questions of identity and and who is appropriate to tell this story, and and should you take certain points of view or perspectives? Um, so, I, I try to be fair to that. It's not it's not something that I've been called out on. Which I'm happy about, right? I'm not on the, uh, you know, the men writing about sex Twitter. <laughs> well, I'll make sure they're aware of it. Okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If you could. <laughs> but the good thing is, for me, is that I, you know, my agents, a woman, my editors have always been women. Uh, my early readers are women, um, and they're very, very, very quick and and actually pretty happy to, to call me out on my on my BS. Right. So if there's something that I that I got wrong and and it's you know egregiously wrong, uh, they they make sure I'm aware. I, I think it's a sliding scale too, in a sense of, uh, you know, you have you have a character that's a vigilante and you know she's biting people's noses off or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean that that's that might be exaggerated to what someone would say it's not realistic, but in a sense there's probably a lot of um, women out there that. Um, do vigilante acts in a much smaller way as a response that maybe people aren't always aware of. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't uh, disagree with that at all. And I think that's where Melinda, her sister and the, the former social worker really came in, right. As sort of the, you know, Emily is the vigilante is, you know, cartoonish. Right. To an extent, right? She's climbing in windows and she's wearing a mask and she's got a baton. You know, there, there's a lot about her. And, and somebody, somebody said, and it was a good, re- it was a positive, it was a, it was a positive review that a bookstagrammer gave me. But they said, um, they said, you have to suspend your disbelief with Emily. 
And I'm not sure how I feel about that because on one hand, yeah, you kind of do. On the other hand, I don't want her to be, I don't want someone to read the book and think like, yeah, this isn't realistic whatsoever. But Melinda is the grounding person, right? So she's the other POV, you know, and she's the one who's in the, who sort of, you know, is in the real world, um, is, you know, you feel the, the ground under her feet and the, the weariness and the exhaustion and the repulsion and, and stuff like that. And also the way that she, she responds to, to sort of the, the horror of the world is, I think, much more in line with, um, with a, a sort of more fully human character. I will say that as the novel continues, um, then Emily, finds that, you know, when Emily has to become sort of more human, um, that's a, a very disorienting moment for her. Right, right. But I think it's important in a way. I think it might it might exaggerate it some in her acts, but it, it kind of brings attention to what you're trying to have the reader understand. Yeah, you know, I didn't want to create, I wanted to write sort of a superhero, but I wanted, I didn't want it to be, you know, I, I, I couldn't have her just, you know, fly away or, yeah. or yeah. live blissfully, blissful, you know, afterwards. There had to be something, um, and that's, that's the crux of the novel without giving anything away, but, you know, is, is how these two sisters sort of cope with each other and with their, um, once they're you know, brought back together, they're sort of uh, the, the ground they stand on. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. You know, it's better than Jack Reacher. <laughs> you, you know, that sounds really good. I, I'm like, why didn't I put this in the synopsis or the back of the book? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's right. You know, I mean, let people know. Wow. So um, let's, let, do you like to interact with your fans? Do you like people to um, kind of respond and, 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 you know, make comments and talk to you and stuff? Do you have, like, social media? Do you have website? Like, where do, where is it people can find you? So the – yeah, I love talking with people, as John knows. I, <laughs> usually they have to walk away. But, um, <laughs> yeah, the, the best way is my website probably. Um, it's eamr.com. And on there, there's a link to my monthly newsletter called Crime Fiction Works. And in that, I have an author note about – whatever I'm going through in writing. And then after that, I list uh, books that month that are the month before that came out that I'm excited about. So I try to make something that is about me, but also about crime fiction in general. And that's the, the best way to, uh, and, and people respond to that. It seems to have taken off. So, and, and I like doing it. So it's that happy balance of um, something I like that actually works. Um, so yeah, my website, eamr.com, you can subscribe to Crime Fiction Works, and that's the, the easiest and probably best way. Perfect. Well, I'll have that up on our website as well, so people can find it with one click. Now, you also mentioned you had an OnlyFans page, too. So what, what, what was yeah. that, so people can look that up? <laughs> yeah, no, that's fine. That is, um, it's sex ed. <laughs> That's good. Are you under and the name? You're under the name John Copenhaver. Is that it? <laughs> um, yeah. If anybody, if, when you click it, you uh, you can enroll in sex ed. <laughs> well, there we go. See, now you, we've learned a lot here. We know exactly. What, what <laughs> Maybe too much. Yeah, we, we know now uh, the dangers of a, of an only child. You know, but yeah. 
Well, we appreciate it. You know, uh, of course, now the book we're talking about is No Home for Killers, and it's a thriller, and it's by our guest, E.A. Amer. So thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Al and John. This was awesome. I'm so happy to be in your lineup, and I uh, really appreciate the interview. Thanks, Ed. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.